Beloved, it has been said wisely by many people that we must come to know God. We must come to know ourselves, and as such, we must then come to know our Savior. When we come to know God in his holiness, when we come to know ourselves and our sinfulness, it points us and drives us to our Savior. And how can we do this? How do we come to know God, ourselves, and our Savior? Uh, we know it by reading Scripture, by studying Scripture, by being taught Scripture, by understanding that in the Bible, the Bible is always profitable. We pray, Lord, let me treasure your word in my heart so that I may follow you, so that I may not sin against you. And the word of the living God is always profitable. And there are times when it is very pleasurable. We can read like the beginning portion of Psalm 95 and it's call to worship and it's very pleasurable as believers. At the same time, we should realize that there are portions of scripture, all of which again are profitable, which can be painful. We can move from the pleasurable extolling of God and his grace and mercy to a reminder of the warning of God's judgment, of his righteousness, of even his wrath. And that is precisely what we find ourselves at in Hebrews chapter 3. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. And we've seen when we read Hebrews, the first few verses of chapter 1, he begins, the author begins with a deep dive into driving home to us the point that the Son, the second member of the Trinity, is superior, vastly superior to the prophets and the way in which God had spoken to people, his people, in times past. And then in most of chapter 1 and 2, there's an extended treatise on the superiority of the Son over angels. In chapter 3, the author is driving home the fact to us that Jesus is the true and greater Moses, even as we sang in the beautiful song that we just sang. In the first six verses, we saw that in much of the same way that Moses was an apostle, he was sent from God to bring a message to the nation of Israel, Jesus is the apostle. He's the apostle of all apostles. And in much of the same way that Aaron was the high priest to the nation of Israel, Jesus is the high priest. And what Two men did imperfectly under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. The one man, Jesus, does perfectly, finally, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant of God. And in verse 6, we read these words where the author writes, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. But then we encounter this little two-word preposition, if... If, and that's big if, that's a all caps if, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And there in the middle of verse 6 is the beginning of the author giving his second great warning in the book of Hebrews. The first warning was back in chapter 2, verse 1. And what we see is because of this very big, significant if in verse 6, that leads into a very big, significant therefore at the beginning of verse 7. Because there's a big if in verse 6, there's a big therefore in verse 7. And really, the rest of chapter 3 deals with that if. Verses 7 through 19. Our passage here this morning is one big warning. And what God says through the author to you and me is he says, look at Israel. In particular, look at 
the generation of Israel that was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Look at them, look and learn. You see, when we understand the history of the nation of Israel at that point in time, even after God had supernaturally rescued them and redeemed them and delivered them out of their 400 years of slavery in the land of Egypt, even after he called them out of Egypt and they were able to leave the land of Egypt with plunder from the Egyptians and God provided for them and God parted the Red Sea so that they could escape Pharaoh's army, and then he closed the Red Sea back over Pharaoh's army. What we see is they were a disobedient, rebellious people, and the author of Hebrews is using this as a powerful illustration for the author to his original audience of Jewish believers and to you and me here today. What he is saying is the nation at that time wanted the world, so they walked away from the word. And he's saying, don't act like faithless Israel because the prospect of God's judgment is terrifying. Beloved, listen as I read the word of God that we have in our passage here this morning, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7 and forward. God says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where you're Fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we're going to do this morning to help us take this Hebrew line of argument and this great treatise by the author here is we're going to look at verses 7 through 11 first, and then we'll pick up verses 15 through 19 at the end, and then we'll circle back to the middle. And what we see is he opens up with this powerful illustration out of the biblical times of the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness. He gives an explanation in verses 15 through 19, and then he gives the exhortation in the center verses, in verses 12 through 14. And beloved, the intent here from God for the original audience and for you and me, for any brother or sister in Christ, in any country, in any language, at any point in time, is that we would be encouraged to endure in our faith. That we would hold fast firm to the hope of our assurance, which began at our profession. So first, in verses 7 through 11, we see this powerful example. 
And we know back in verse 1 of chapter 3, right there what the author said to you and to me is, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Fix your mind. Fix your attention. Fix your heart, your focus, your devotion on the Son, on the second member of the Trinity that he's been extolling and building up for us even in the first two chapters. So he says, fix your mind on Jesus in verse 1. Now in verse 7, he says, hear his voice and conversely, don't harden your heart. But he begins with that therefore. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says. And then what he does from there is he goes and he has an extended quote of the latter part of Psalm 95. Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11 is quoted almost verbatim in verse 7 through 11 here in the writing of Hebrews. And you'll notice that he says, just as the Holy Spirit says. Now, what's amazing is Psalm 95 is quoted three times here at the end of chapter 3 and in the beginning of verse 4. It's quoted its entirety here. It's quoted partially in verse 15 here in chapter 3. And then it's quoted again partially in chapter 4, verse 7. What's interesting and amazing is here he says, just as the Holy Spirit says. In chapter 4, verse 7, the author says, just as David says. So that begs the question, did the Holy Spirit write this? Or did David write this? And the answer is, yes, they both wrote it. This is one of the classic treatments or places to go that brings out the strong affirmation of divine inspiration. That the words in this book, in the 66 books in the Bible, were written by men and they were written by God. They're written by men with their vocabulary and their background and their history. But God bore them along. They were superintended by the Holy Spirit. The way the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse 21, where you'll read, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And then we go from there into the beginning of this extended quote. He says, today if you hear his voice. Now, Psalm 95, the first part, the first six and a half verses of Psalm 95 were well read and often used in temple ritual in ancient Israel. Even in the synagogue worship in early Israel, and sometimes even today, the beginning portion is read. In fact, even in Christian churches, in the Episcopal liturgy, for example, Psalm 95 is very commonly used. But more often than not, they only use the first six and a half verses. They only use the call to worship at the neglect of the warning against apostasy. But what we see here is, David said in Psalm 95, the author here says, today, if you hear his voice. Beloved, the point is, God speaks. God speaks through his word. God spoke to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai after God rescued them out of Egypt. God spoke to Israel when they were in the wilderness. God spoke to Israel through David centuries later. When he wrote Psalm 95, God spoke to this group of Jewish believers that were the original recipients of this book. And God speaks to Santan Bible Church today in the year of our Lord, 2022, in Gilbert, Arizona. And literally when it says, just as the Holy Spirit says, literally says, just as the Holy Spirit is saying. 
the point that we should bring out here and make sure we understand is the Bible is living, it is active, it is binding. And here, he's not just speaking to Jewish Christians in the first century. This is for all Christians at all time in every country, every language. And even as we read the first part of Psalm 95 in our public reading of Scripture, where we read the beautiful words, we are the sheep of his pasture. If we know anything about sheep, sheep are, and I'm speaking for myself here, I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody else, but the illustration is from the Lord. Sheep are stupid. He'll rescue them from danger and they'll run headlong right back into danger and they have to be rescued again. And again, I'm applying it to myself, not to you. But we can ask the question, how does God keep his stupid sheep from straying? The way he does, beloved, is he continues to speak. He continues to speak to us. So when you hear scripture, when you read scripture, when you pray scripture, when you sing beautiful biblical lyrics, be confident God is speaking to you right here today. Every time we open the Bible, the Holy Spirit speaks. These are living words. If you've been here for a while, you might have heard me reference an old saying that, I don't know if people still say it, but they used to say, well, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. And what I've said before is a vastly superior version of that is God said it, that settles it. Whether I believe it or not has no bearing on whether or not the matter is settled. It's settled because God said it. Perhaps as we would take a cue from the author of Hebrews, maybe a little better or at least a companion way of saying it is God is saying it, therefore it is settled now and always will be. But Back in our text, we can ask the question, what is the voice of God saying? Verse 8, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. So this is the example that he's leading into. And if you turn back to Numbers, I already referenced this a little bit, but the sad reality is after God's miraculous deliverance and redemption and provision, they were a sinful and rebellious people, which that's very representative of all men at all times. In Numbers chapter 11, there was a mixed multitude of people that came out of the land of Egypt with the nation of Israel. And what we see in Numbers chapter 11 is the people began to complain. Uh, verse 4, the rabble who were among them, so some of the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt had greedy desires. And they began to grumble. Verse 5, we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks and the onions and the garlic. I mean, I'm a foodie, so I get the whole idea of like being captured by food. But look at the tremendous sinful response, verse 6. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. And you can, just, you can hear the derision dripping from their mouths with that statement. So the manna that God was on a daily basis supernaturally providing for the survival of the nation of Israel in the wilderness is the object of derision of this people, of the greedy rabble. And what we see is it began to affect and pollute the nation of Israel. You turn over to chapter 13, and God had sent spies, Caleb and Joshua and 10 more spies, 
into the land that he had promised the nation of Israel back to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And in Numbers 13, verse 25 and forward, the spies came back. And what we read is 10 of the spies had a bad report. They, they said the people in the land, they're like giants. They're like Nephilim. You see that at the end of chapter 13. Beginning of chapter 14, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And so they have what God recorded was a bad report. But Caleb and Joshua had a good report. But what happened is in chapter 14, if you look at verse 2, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. All the sons of Israel. That doesn't mean that every single individual person, but the vast majority of the nation of Israel, people from all parts and portions of Israel, were grumbling against Moses, who was God's messenger to the people, and Aaron, who was the high priest. So back here in Hebrews, that's the backdrop of their rebellion against God. They were grumbling and they were murmuring. We continue on in verse 9 here in Hebrews 3. God says, where your fathers tried me by testing me. And they saw my works for 40 years. So not only did they see all of God's miraculous works getting them out of Egypt, not only did they see the cloud, of, uh, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, not only did they see God provide water for them as a nation out of a rock when they were thirsty, not only did they see that their shoes and their clothes didn't wear out, but they saw the man on a daily basis. And what they did in their heart was they tested God. They weren't satisfied with God's word. They weren't satisfied with God's witness. And they were craving for more. And they wanted more. They demanded more evidence. And the sad reality here is, rather than rightly understanding that they, as are all human beings, tested by God under the magnifying glass of God, they put God under the magnifying glass, and they were testing God. That is the rebellion that's brought out here. The author continues, verse 10, Therefore, God says, I was angry with this generation. Now, that's how we see this here in Hebrews. Uh, if you remember when I read this from Psalm 94, the, or Psalm 95, excuse me, in Psalm 95, it reads, I loathe that generation. Now, to be sure, angry, for God to be angry, that's a powerful, intense word. But the original Psalm 95 was even more powerful, more intense. God's righteous wrath, his righteous anger was burning against the continual rebellion, the continual disobedience, the continual unbelief that was in the hearts of the people. That's why God says, continuing verse 10, they always go astray in their hearts, and they did not know my ways. So in their hearts, they go sideways. They go twisted. They go the wrong way rather than the right way. And they didn't know my ways. Now, we might read that and think, oh, well, the poor people were just ignorant. They just didn't know his ways. But this is not, beloved, dear friend, this is not a, an innocent ignorance. This is a culpable ignorance. This is a guilty ignorance. They were willfully ignorant. Their hearts were unbelieving and their eyes were blind to the miracles that were right before them, to the witness God performed for them. This was not a matter of inability. This was a matter of unwillingness. 
They didn't want to know, so they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And as a result, they squandered the opportunity that they had before God. Dear friend, ignorance of God's ways does lead to straying. But habitual straying exacerbates that ignorance. It makes it worse. It intensifies that ignorance. And understand this. Going back to the warning that we saw at the beginning of verse 7, a hardened heart is not a sudden aberration. When someone falls, they never fall very far. A hardened heart is a habitual state of mind that's built up like calluses from lifting weights uh, over time. It takes time. And so for 40 years, they had left Egypt, but Egypt was still in their heart. And in the same way, the compass, the needle of a compass turns towards the magnetic north, so also their eyes turned to the place where their real treasure lay. And the world was in their hearts, and so their hearts were in the world rather than being in the word and satisfied with the word, satisfied with the glory of God. Uh, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, also used this generation as an example. In the fifth, fifth verse of Jude, there's only one chapter in Jude, 25 verses, In verse 5, Jude says, I desire to remind you that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So what Jude captures in one verse there is God, who is the deliverer, with a capital D, is also the God who is the destroyer, with a capital D. Again, there's the pleasurable truth and there's the painful truth. Both are necessary. And the situation, what Jude is citing, what the author of Hebrews is citing, what David was citing some four or five hundred years after the event was that all the people of Israel, again, Numbers 14, verse 2, all the people of Israel believe the majority report of the ten rather than the minority report of the two. They believe the earthly report of the ten rather than the heavenly report of the two. And of course for us, we'd like to think we'd be among the two rather than among the ten, but it's a reminder that when we're so sure that we're standing firm and holding fast, we ought to take care lest we fall on our face. Like Solomon says, In Proverbs 16, what goes before a fall? Pride goes before a fall. Continuing verse 11, the author says as he finishes up the quotation from the end of Psalm 95, as I swore in my wrath, God says, they will not enter my rest. Now, similar to the other quotations that we've seen here in Hebrews, the original meaning of the verse out of Psalms has a slightly different meaning than the way the author applies it here, although the original pointed to the greater reality. So when David wrote that, when David wrote Psalm 95, which by the way, when you read Psalm 95, you won't see the superinscription that says a Psalm of David. But based on Hebrews 4, 7, we do know that that is a Davidic Psalm. Now, when David wrote that, when God says, they will not enter my rest, the primary import behind that is they won't enter into the land that God had promised to Abraham, that God had promised to the nation of Israel. The land, though, even the promised land to the nation of Israel, which God still will fulfill that promise 
to the nation of Israel in the future. The land was a visible and tangible marker that pointed to an even greater reality, to an even greater blessing. God's blessing of safety, security, and salvation, which the nation will enjoy in the land, and they would have enjoyed in the land earlier if they had been obedient, but it's pointing to the final true land of rest. And this is the way in which the author of Hebrews is bringing this out to us as the purpose and the application of this illustration. The final rest, the eternal Sabbath rest that we have, not in a place, but in a person. The eternal Sabbath rest that we enjoy, will enjoy forever and ever in the presence of Christ in heaven. And as new creatures in Christ Jesus, we enjoy right now a foretaste of heaven on earth. That's the illustration. And then briefly, let's look at the explanation he gives in verses 15 through 19. Verse 15, he quotes the beginning part of Psalm 95, verse 7 again, or the, yes, the latter part of verse 7. Verse 15, while it said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And then what he does in verses 16 through 19 is the author gives five questions. He basically employs what was a common rhetorical device in the teaching and the discourse of the day. So this author was very skilled, very brilliant, very godly. He knew Hebrew. He knew Greek. He he was skilled in rhetorical dialect and argumentation. And what you do is you ask a question and then you answer the question with another question. So what we see in verses 16 through 19 is the first and third questions are immediately answered by the second and fourth question, and then the fifth question is answered within itself. So in verse 16, first question, for who provoked him when they had heard? And then he answers it with the second. Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt as led by Moses? And what we see is we see that who provoked him, and they, that was verse 16. Verse 17, they sinned. Verse 18, they were disobedient. Verse 19, it was unbelief. Four markers of this intense rebellion of the people against God. And we know that faithless Israel rejected the leadership of Moses and Aaron, as we saw earlier from chapter 14, verse 2. Beloved, what the author is bringing out here is if God's judgment on Israel at that time was so severe when they rejected Aaron and Moses how much more so will the severity be of God's judgment on one who rejects Christ the apostle the high priest he reminds us that God's judgment is true and is severe but there is always a way of escape and A point here at the end of verse 16 in the second question when he says, Indeed, not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses, where they provoked him, there were two exceptions, weren't there? There was Caleb and Joshua. This also doesn't mean when we realize that everyone that's committed this great sin in the day of trial of the nation at that time doesn't mean that all those who are over the age of 20 that weren't able to go into the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua God doesn't mean that every single one of those people were necessarily damned spiritually. For example, Moses. Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land, but he was saved. So all this, when we read this, there is great, great rebellion, but 
God always has a remnant. It may be a small remnant, but God always has a faithful remnant. Verse 17, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Beloved, what God is saying there in Psalm 95 and here in Hebrews 3 is that because the people of Israel rejected the word of God, because they rejected the witness of God as part of his righteous judgment, he would turn them into a witness for future generation. He would turn 600,000 corpses into a witness for future generations. And this is in fulfillment of God's word of warning and judgment to that rebellious nation in Numbers 14, verse 29. God says, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, who grumbled against God and his leadership, who weren't satisfied with his provision. 40 years. That was an 11, by the way, it was an 11-day journey that should have taken them 11 days. It took them 40 years because of the judgment of God. Then verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. The rebellion lasted the entire 40 years. Those, they were rebellious, they were presumptuous, and they won't enter his rest. Beloved, what this tells us here, what this reminds us here, is that willful disobedience and Christian assurance don't go hand in hand. They cannot coexist. And again, because the nation rejected the witness of God, their 600,000 corpses became a witness for future generations. The commentator Lenski had these choice words on that dynamic. He said this, quote, What a long, long line of graves, the saddest in the world. They came out of the bondage of Egypt under faithful Moses, but they fell as corpses in the wilderness. Beloved, that is the testimony that is, that is the explanation that God gives us here of this illustration. And it's been well said, when you consider the warning here to professing Christians, to, we could say, half-dead Christians. A half-dead Christian may be a true Christian who is quenching the Holy Spirit, who is beginning to drift away. It could be someone who professes to be a Christian but isn't really a Christian. But the company of the graveyard, it has been said, is comforting to half-dead Christian. And so an answer that we want to ask ourselves always is, am I drifting away from the salvation, the Lord, the Savior, or am I holding fast to I remember I had a supervisor once who told his team that in between Christmas and New Year's, he wasn't gonna be, was not going to be taking a vacation. He said, I'm just going to be kind of coasting. And that's all well and fine if you're you know, in some kind of work environment uh, between Christmas and New Year's. But, beloved, the point here is this. The characteristic of Christian life is not sluggish coasting. John Calvin said, Unless our faith be now and then raised up, it will lie prostrate. Unless it's warmed, it will be frozen. Unless it's roused, it will grow lazy and slow. And that's why, look at verse 19 at the end of the explanation. The author says, and so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. 
So when we think of them provoking God, we think of their sinning, we think of their disobedience, all serious sins. The author finishes with the supreme summation of sin and disobedience, namely unbelief. It's not ultimately about behavior. It's about belief. It's a heart issue. Going back to verse 7, don't harden your heart. Because it's a heart issue, that means it's a belief issue. And to be sure, the wilderness generation, this great illustration he's using, they were guilty of many things, but they were judged for their unbelief. That is what the author brings out here. They knew God's will and they disobeyed it. Beloved, what this means for you and for me is, friend, what this means for you and for me is we better not walk the wrong way and think we're on the right way. That's why the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. When you begin to, well, and ask the question, is there some kind of early warning system to detect a heart that's growing cold, that one is beginning to drift? Well, when you begin to grow weary of prayer, if you begin to grow weary of Bible study, if you begin to grow weary of fellowship of the saints, when in your mind you're saying, this is manna, all this is is manna. When your old worldview, when your old way of life, when your old circle of companionship become to grow in affection and allure in your mind, beloved, dear friend, you're in deadly danger. And if this describes you for this reason, God says through Hebrews, you must consider Jesus. You must hold fast your confidence and the boast of your hope firm until the end. You must take care, brother or sister, lest you have an evil, unbelieving heart and fall away from the living God. And may God in his mercy arrest our drift correct our wandering, break our hearts, renew our minds, and restore our souls. That's the illustration and the explanation. Let's finish, beloved, with the great exhortation God gives us in verses 12 through 14. And what we see here in this exhortation where he's basically applying this lesson he would want us to learn from history is there's a communal responsibility. There's an individual gravity And there's a crucial urgency. First, there is, to be sure, a communal responsibility in this warning. And what the author brings out is that as Christ is greater in glory than Moses, that we saw back in verse 3 of chapter 3, how much more so is the past rejection of Moses pale in comparison to rejecting Christ. The nation of Israel lost the promise of entering into the land that God had given them. What he's saying here is one who professes Jesus, one who says he or she is a partaker of the Holy Spirit and of Christ, don't lose entering into the eternal ultimate land of rest, of heavenly rest. That's why he says, verse 12, take care brethren and the brethren it's a group it's the body of Christ that's the communal responsibility take care beware see to it heed be careful with be on your guard is what he is saying here take care brethren lest there should be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God and 
The Greek word translated here as falling away, that's the Greek word from which we get the English word apostasy. Be careful lest you fall away and apostatize from the true faith. But, then he gives, that's the negative warning, that's the prohibition. But now look at verse 13. Here's the positive exhortation. But, encourage one another day after day. Come alongside one another. Comfort one another. We are commanded to encourage one another, notice, daily, day after day. Why does God say to you and me to encourage one another day after day, daily? Because the problem is there daily. It's ever-present. And what this is describing, this communal responsibility, it's describing fellowship which excises a watchful and unremitting care for one another. This is all about care and concern. It's not about nosiness or busybodiness. And when we think of the author of Hebrews writing, we know, and we'll come to this later on in chapter 10, that there were some among this fellowship of Jewish believers that were forsaking their assembling together. Remember in chapter 10, verse 24, the author says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then in verse 25, he says, not forsaking the assembling together as is the habit of some. And again, this is driving home the communal responsibility. And this is why, beloved, whether it's monkeypox, monkey business, or the midterm variant, we won't stop gathering together. Because this ties in not just to the command from God, but the very being and the very salvation and the very safety and security that we enjoy in Christ. Ah, thought I heard something drop. Beloved, we share one another's burdens. We provide encouragement to the weak and the disheartened. And by the way, these commands, this is, these are standing orders. We are to do this on a regular basis. Jonathan Edwards when describing the dynamic, Jonathan Edwards, when he was describing the dynamic that he saw in what has been called the Great Awakening of churches, this is what he said about the dynamic of body life in local churches. He said, there were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. End quote. Beloved, immerse yourself in the community of believers, in the care and watchfulness of the local church, in the preaching of God's word, in the exhortation and all the other one another's from scripture for your joy, for your growth, for your blessing, for your security. This guards against an evil, unbelieving heart. So there is a corporate responsibility and there is an individual gravity. He addresses this to the brethren, but there's an individual aspect of it. Uh, we understand, the author wants us to know that each and every one of us, lest any one of us, any individual, fall away. He wants us to understand that to begin well is good. First impressions are important, but that's not enough. What he says is only those who stay the course and finish the race will win the prize of eternal rest. He says, verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ. We are participating in him and with him. Uh, 
He opened up chapter 3 by calling us holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. We have become partakers of Christ, but then look in the middle of verse in the middle of verse 14, there is another very significant if statement. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. This is a second we saw the first big if statement back in verse, uh, where was it? Six. <laughs> We saw the first big if statement back in verse 6. Now we see it again here in verse 14. And notice the main point he's bringing out here is the if statement is not talking about a future possibility. It's talking about a present reality. He doesn't say, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, you will become partakers of Christ. He says you have become partakers of Christ. It's like the southern preacher that said, well, if you say the word, the name Howard in one syllable, Howard, that doesn't make you a southerner, that just proves you're a southerner. Well, in the same way, what the author is saying here is, if we hold fast to the firm assurance, firm until the end, that's evidence that you're a believer, it doesn't make you a believer. So that is what he wants us to understand. And that is a communal responsibility. That is an individual gravity. And finally, there is, besides these, a crucial urgency that jumps out of the entire text. Now, you may be familiar with this theologically deep, rich prayer, which goes like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, that might be viewed by most of us as somewhat of a, ch a charming childhood prayer. But the origin of that didn't have anything to do with just the beautiful artistry of language coming from a children. The reality was... For the ancient man or woman, that was daily life. The ancient man or woman very often didn't know what we just take for granted. They didn't know when they laid their head down at night whether or not they would wake up alive or if they were concerned about their salvation, they would wake up in hell. And there is a crucial urgency, and that is why the author brings out what we see here in verse 13. Look at what it says. As long as it is still called today. So five times in verses 7 through 19, you see today, 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 today. That's how David opened up Psalm 95. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of deliverance. As long as it's still called today, dear friend, the opportunity is here until you reach the end of your life. The Apostle Paul wrote to the immature, unbelie well, the immature church in Corinth, the immature church in Corinth, he said, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. As long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the danger. You see, sin has pleasures. It invites with charms. It's a great promiser, but sin is a liar, like the father of lies, the devil. And beloved, there's a direct 
connection here. When we look at this passage, 7 through 19, there is a direct connection between a deaf ear, a hardened heart, and a wandering life. That is the danger. And just as the flower turns towards the sun, let your heart turn towards the voice of God. Make sure you're listening to the voice of God today. Ask yourself today. Ask yourself tomorrow when tomorrow becomes today. Have I read my Bible today? Have I prayed today? And understand, the devil's favorite word is tomorrow. Moody, the 19th century evangelist, was preaching to a congregation of about 2,500 in Chicago. He was preaching on Pilate when Jesus appeared before Pilate, and Pilate asked himself, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Moody finished his sermon by challenging the audience to take the next week to weigh the claims of Christ. He promised to return the following Sunday and challenged them to commit to Christ. The meeting ended with a hymn, and during the hymn, many of the 2,500 souls began to hear the sounds of fire engines of the great Chicago fire. And what Moody reported later was he wondered how many of those 2,500 souls to whom he was preaching on that one night died that night and died even the next day. And this is what he said later. He said, quote, I want to tell you what I learned that night. And that is, when I preach, I press Christ upon the people then and there. I'd rather have my right hand cut off than to give an audience a week to decide what to do with Jesus. Beloved, there is crucial urgency to all of God's demands in Scripture and as powerful as any place perhaps as here in Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Today is a day of decision. Today is a day of salvation. And beloved, today is today only for so long. And we can pray in our hearts, Lord, help me to remember tomorrow what I have learned today. And this is because... It's very serious business. What we're talking about here, dear friend, is salvation. We're talking about being part of God's house or not being part of God's house. We're talking about partaking in Christ and with Christ or not partaking in Christ and with Christ. We're talking about belief and unbelief. We're talking about salvation and condemnation. Decisions are real and genuine. A decision for Christ is real and genuine insofar as it begets perseverance. Only those who stray two to the cause and who finish the course will receive the price. God is so very clear. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one that secures and holds us on in our salvation, Romans chapter 8. From a human responsibility standpoint, though, what is the evidence? Because God's wrath against the unbelieving generation of Israel in the wilderness was great. How much greater will his wrath be against those of us who have heard the entirety of both the Old Testament and the New Testament? And I'll finish with a long quote from Donald Gray Barnhouse. Donald Barnhouse, Pastor Barnhouse, was a pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in the early part of the 20th century. And he was describing the wrath of God, which appears in our text, in the context of the great waters that would amass behind the Hoover Dam. This is what Barnhouse said. 
He said, I can remember the first time I ever saw Hoover Dam, one of the greatest dams on earth. It's been thrown across the waters of the Colorado River, and these waters have backed up for miles and penetrated into every little cove and valley. And so it is with the wrath of God. The first time there was ever a sin committed, the wrath of God was stored up against that sin. As men lived upon the earth and as their hearts grew more wicked and the outbreak of their sin became more violent, the store of wrath grew greater and greater, held back by the patience of God, which lies across the valley of his judgment like a great dam across the river. For Thousands of years, Dr. Barnhouse continued, that dam held and God has held back his wrath. Occasionally throughout human history, he stooped to dip his hand into the pent-up flood and pour a few drops of wrath on some especially vicious outbreak of rebellion. But for the most part, God seemed to overlook the sins of man in the centuries before the cross, and it almost looked as if sin was tolerated, but it was just piling up. The dam broke one day, and it broke at Calvary. It broke on Christ and drowned him in the sea of sin. It will break again, and it will drown all those who aren't in Christ. Christ took the judgment for those who believe. For those who don't believe, they'll take their own judgment, and the wrath of God waits upon them. Barnhouse finished. Now listen, this is where the gospel begins. Remember, there is good news. And the good news is Christ has taken the full fury of God's wrath if you'll accept his gracious substitution for you. End quote. Beloved, dear friend, may we come to know God. May we come to know ourselves and By that, may we come to know our Savior greater and greater. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your righteous judgment. We praise you for your wrath. And Lord, we are eternally grateful and praise you and thank you for our salvation. So great a salvation, so great a rescue, so great a redemption, so great an adoption where we who were children of Satan are now your sons and daughters, cleansed sons and daughters, washed, made pure by your shed blood. And dear God, we pray for anyone that is here this morning not trusting you alone by faith alone. Lord, draw them to yourself. Let them know no peace until they know the peace that you provide through a restored, forgiven relationship. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we fellowship, that we depart here armed with the good news of the imperishable seed of the truth of Scripture. Amen.